do, and that's to look directly at what Scripture says about Jesus, who he is, what his identity is, and what that means for us as followers of, of him. And as we look at our passage tonight, we're also going to get to see, from Peter's perspective, the words he uses, but then also the, the, the view that God the Father has of Jesus the Son. And so um, we'll be looking at 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5 tonight. Let's look at that together and read that. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so now one of the things we need to keep in mind as we continue working through the second chapter of 1 Peter is Peter uses a lot of Old Testament text. He refers back to Old Testament words, Old Testament passages that help us see who Christ is. And actually this, uh, this past week, or a couple of weeks ago, Jackson, as he opened up our um, study in chapter 2 in the first three verses. If you'll look with me back at verse 3 that Jackson covered, we see one of these first times that Peter references an Old Testament passage. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In our English, we see the word Lord. But in the original text, this is a reference to Yahweh. And it's actually a reference back to Psalm 34 where we read that taste and see language that Jackson talked about so much with us last week and walked us through. But Peter here, though, in his second chapter of his first epistle, is making this connection for his readers between Jesus and Yahweh. It's not that they're connected separately, but Jesus is the God alone. He is the God with no peer. He has no equal. He is, Jesus is, included within the being of the one true God. And so then as Peter begins this verse 4, our passage tonight, he states, as you come to him. And so this him, H-I-M, that we'll soon see is going to be Christ. So coming to him, coming to Christ is equated with following Jesus or believing in Jesus, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, um, looking at verse 7. That'll be something that'll come out to us. But this is at the core of who Christ is. This is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. You come to a point in your life when you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you may have life in his name, as John's gospel says. And our faith then manifests itself in coming to Christ for life itself. And the reason that for those of us who believe in Jesus, that we have eternal life, it's because of what Peter says next in verse 4. Jesus is a living stone. It goes on to say he's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, where I would say it really matters, Jesus is chosen and precious. And so now when we think of this phrase, living stone, it's kind of an oxymoron. Living, the word living, and the word stone. We don't typically think of those things together. When you think of a stone, it's lifeless. It's dead. There's no action there, right? Um, but um, we see in this that uh, when you think of that rock or stone, there's no life in it. But as we as Christians think more about a rock, sometimes we have these, pa these other passages of Scripture that come to our minds. Maybe Psalm 18.2 comes to our mind. 
The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. Or maybe Psalm 95.1 comes into mind. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Possibly Psalm 92.15 comes to mind. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. And so these passages bring us comfort. When we face trials, when we face difficult times in our lives, we often think back to these types of passages that give us an identity of who the Lord is as a rock and as a stone. But why does a rock bring us comfort? Again, we can think of a rock as being lifeless, dead. But Peter helps us with this, with how he uses this word living. How he attaches that to his description of this stone. This stone is different than other stones. It's not like other stones. And on one level, Peter's going to go back to this image of life that he used previously in 1 Peter 1. You may remember back when we were walking through the first chapter, but in verse 3 it says of chapter 1, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so there in chapter 1, Peter said that God has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection power of Jesus from the dead. Christ's resurrection brings us this living hope. So Peter also seems to be pointing us in this particular passage back to Psalm 118.22 that says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so now the idea of this living stone becoming a cornerstone is something that's going to be fleshed out over the next several weeks, so I'm not going to really lean into that tonight. But what we need to look at and what we're reading here is consistent with what Peter also says in Acts 4, verses 10 through 11. So hold your place in 1 Peter 2, but then flip over to Acts 4, starting in verse 10. We'll come back, obviously, to our passage from the second chapter of 1 Peter, but I want to look at this Acts 4 passage for us. And just as a quick reminder of what's happened right before verses 10 and 11, um, Peter and John have gone to the temple in Jerusalem to pray. They've come across a lame man. They've healed him. It's gathered a crowd. They've preached. They've drawn some attention. Um, they've ended up getting arrested. And it's late in the afternoon, not time for a, a, a court hearing, so to speak. So they've been put in jail overnight. So then the next day, they appear in front of the Sanhedrin. And here in verse 10 of Acts 4, Peter says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So notice here that Peter's affirming that these religious leaders hated Jesus to the point that they crucified him. That's the ultimate rejection. They murdered him. But in spite of that crucifixion, death, and rejection that Jesus experienced, God raises Jesus from the dead, and he makes him the cornerstone. In Mitchell Chase's book titled Resurrection, Hope, and the Death of Death, Dr. Chase says this about Christ's resurrection power. The good news about Jesus includes his virginal conception, his sinless life, and his sin-bearing death. But the gospel is 
incomplete without the empty tomb. If Jesus remained defeated by death, his perpetual entombment would call into question everything he said and did before the cross. The resurrection of Jesus on the third day is crucial to the good news, and the good news is emptied of its power without it. Paul says that if Jesus hasn't been raised, then we're still in our sins. Our preaching is powerless and our hope is in vain. When Jesus rose from the dead, the perishable put on the imperishable, and because he did, we will. Our hope is risen, so our hope is sure. Dr. Chase is drawing our attention to Peter's point that the resurrection of Christ is where our hope and life come from. Man's rejection of Jesus was real at the crucifixion, but in his resurrection, we have true hope over death. And so Peter's consistent with the other authors of Scripture in his message that Jesus was rejected by men. We can say this rejection was a general rejection by certain people, but I think the better point from Scripture is that this rejection reached its climax in his execution. That seems to be the message of Acts 4, verse 10. So his crucifixion is the ultimate rejection. But now, looking back at verse 4, 1 Peter 2, we can flip over there, you can turn loose of Acts 4. But his crucifixion and the ultimate rejection, now in 1 Peter 2, 4, even though Jesus is rejected by men, how does God the Father see Jesus? In the sight of God, chosen and precious. In the sight of God, Jesus is not rejected. That's man. Man rejects Jesus, but in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. As these views stand in contrast to each other, and we say that man ultimately rejects Jesus in his crucifixion, we can say that Jesus is God's chosen and precious son in his resurrection, which brings us living hope. So moving on to now verse 5. You yourselves, like living Stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Those that are being built up on this living stone of Christ, those that come to Jesus, they themselves become living stones in a spiritual house. So when you're unified and united with Christ by faith, you yourself become a living stone because of your faith in the resurrected Christ, his resurrection life, his eternal life. It's given to you, it's given to me as followers such that it will never be taken away. And just as Jesus declared himself to be the true temple of God, the true place where the spirit of God fully dwelled, he now says all those that come to him in faith will be built up with him into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Nowhere else in the New Testament are believers called living stones. Instead, believers are described as God's temple or house. So Peter here is particularly talking about the church together. It's a picture of the house in which believers are building stones. There's a corporate reality here among individual Christians and to the whole community of faith. The focus is on the people of God as a community being filled with the Spirit, loving one another earnestly living in harmony with one another, being guarded through faith, loving Christ, trusting Christ. When the church lives that way by the Spirit, 
they show themselves to be the true spiritual house. It's the place where God dwells. It's not spiritual because it's immaterial, but you and I are the spiritual house because spirit dwells in us. So here's how Paul puts it, and Ashley referred to this earlier, so thank you, Ashley, for the uh, introduction, um, out of Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, and it shares some of the same language that we've looked at here in 1 Peter. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So again, when you come to Christ by faith, you become part of the people who together experience the indwelling presence and the transforming power of God's Holy Spirit. So as we continue on through verse 5, we see a as Peter's continuing with this imagery, we see a sudden shift in his language. In verse five, we see the shift referencing a temple and then quickly he shifts to the word priest. The temple of living stones suddenly becomes a holy priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices. As this new people, this new temple is indwelt by the spirit, his transforming power will manifest itself in the lives of the people that make these spiritual sacrifices. That's how it's gonna flow out through the lives of his people. And Jackson helped us a couple of weeks ago as he walked us through some of these examples uh, from verse one, these examples of spiritual sacrifices. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And I think these examples do speak directly to the context of what Peter's writing in this first epistle but I also think there is a more all-inclusive list when we think about the Christian's life. I think these spiritual sacrifices are to entail any aspect of a believer's life that are pleasing to God by virtue of his transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Any expression of genuine faith, any act of genuine love or holiness. Paul says in Romans 12:1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So as we use our bodies in ways that are holy, these are pleasing, this is pleasing to God. Words spoken in truth and love, expressions of thanks and praise to God. And the author of Hebrews also says, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Then there's the genuine faith that rises up from our heart. Genuine expressions of faith, of praise and appreciation for who God is that's pleasing to him. Prayers offered in faith to God. Acts of generosity. When Paul was in prison, he speaks of this type of loving gift that the Philippians had sent to him as a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So I think Peter has in view here something that we do in dependence on the Lord. Anything that we might do by the power of his spirit that is according to his good and holy will that is made known to us through his word. And as we do these things, they're pleasing to the Lord. And then there's something we can't lose sight of as we look at the end of verse 5. That they're acceptable through Jesus Christ. 
So even as we're transformed and we live real lives of holiness and obedience, we don't leave Jesus behind. We never step away from the cornerstone. We're always dependent on him. He makes our lives truly acceptable to God by his atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the great high priest. He's the only true mediator between God and men. Therefore, it's through him that the blessing of God are mediated to the whole world. So I think that's the big picture of, of what, what it means for us to be a holy priesthood that offers sacrifices to God. So closing out our time tonight, I want to return to Mitchell Chase's book as he frames up for us how we see Jesus throughout all of Scripture and how we Christians experience true hope in Christ's resurrection power. Chase continues, The God of life is at work throughout the Old Testament, opening wounds, liberating captives, rescuing the helpless, and overcoming illness, pushing back the forces of death with irresistible power, these mighty acts of God are fuel for hope that the cords of death are weaker than they appear and will actually burst because of the expulsive strength of new creation. The law, prophets, and writings join together to say, death shall surely die. In the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth the long-awaited seed of the woman, bore sin's curse and conquered death. He arose the firstborn of new creation, and he ascended to reign one day to return. The second coming of Christ will accomplish the consummation of the work he inaugurated. The dead will be raised with the righteous vindicated and the wicked condemned. Our hope of glory can help us endure this present age where enemies of the cross rage like a, the dragon they follow. We cannot fully fathom the glory that is coming, but God will raise us up so that we can receive it. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death as heirs of an everlasting kingdom. Only embodied immortality will fit with such a place. From the dust we will rise to reign. No more exile. No more corruption. No more loss. All things will be made new. For now, every graveyard is a garden awaiting the reaping of what is sown. From the dust, we will rise to shine like stars in a new creation. We will display a glory and life flowing forever from our unbreakable union with Christ. All will be well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words that were penned by Peter that use words that we can reflect on as best as we can as finite created beings that we can look upon you in these words we can see this glimpse of who God the Father sees in you and Jesus his son Father thank you for uh, your atoning power of the, the sacrifice that you made taking on the, the, our sins and your crucifixion and Father thank you that he is a living stone in your eyes, chosen and precious, that you made the cornerstone of our faith. It's something that we can build upon because of the work that Christ has done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.